0: Lord, as we open the word tonight, I pray that we would do so humbly, with reverence, with awe, seeking to honor you. As we are studying through a portion of scripture that talks about what it takes to come before a holy God and to be accepted, um, I pray that we would be immediately mindful of what we've learned, even as we pray right now. That it's only because of the sacrifice, and the atoning blood of Christ that we can even pray. We call on your name because you cause us to remember your name. So we are thankful for this time. We're thankful for the word. We're thankful for prayer that we can uh, be heard by and, and hear from uh, a holy and perfect God who is king of kings and lord of lords and overall. all. Um, Lord, I pray also as we go through the scriptures tonight that um, there's there's just a lot of details and there's a lot of teaching that takes place in the details, and I don't want it to just be a lesson plan. I don't want this to just be a classroom setting where, where there's facts being communicated. Uh, I really pray that through the facts, through the details, you would lead us into worship. That you would draw us into this context in the word and help us to better understand you first and then understand our context here so that we can respond in obedience and in worship. Lord, I know that there um, it's likely that many sitting here have already had a long week and it's only halfway over. And so uh, I pray that this would be a time where um, that really informs our reality and doesn't, it's not like a break from it. Um, it's not like some lesser time that's, that's just a bit of a break. I pray that it's more than a break. I pray that it is worship. I pray that it is uh, your people gathering, congregating uh, for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Exodus 27, if you have not already done so, um, last week, what were some of the observations uh, that we were able to draw in regards to the tabernacle? Oh, wow, I have an entire CD of images that I would like for y'all to magically bring up, but it's on my desk, so don't worry about it, so that's good. There's images right here for um, third through sixth graders, y'all can look at them up on the screen, and they'll help you. Put the images up from last week. It'll at least be partial. That's good. So, uh, since we don't have any images to look at for help, we're going to really need to dig in together and consider what did we observe last week? What, what were some of the things that we saw? Oh, don't worry about it. They're actually on the hard drive with a CD that needs to be burned. <laughs> I really only got about 30% of the way done, but I prepared a lesson. Um, So, the observations in regards to the tabernacle, what were some of the things that we saw as we tried to really crawl into the context, crawl crawl into and, you know, import our senses as you hear from, from me all the time. What were some of the things that we saw about the tabernacle? Yeah, it was to be constructed exactly according to God's design. What else? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't very impressive on the outside if you're just looking at it, it looks like an area covered with animal skin, but on the inside what what was what did you see on the inside? Gold and fine linens and some of some very meticulous um skillful artwork um, that is all representative of much higher things. Uh uh, So you you see the unimpressive from the outside, yet filled with riches and meticulous beauty on the inside. What else do we learn about the tabernacle and all of the furniture and ornaments and such? Lots of gold, layered in gold. It's build this and overlay it with gold. Build this and overlay it with gold. Lots of gold, particularly inside of the tabernacle. Yeah, the high priests were allowed in. What else? God was very, very specific. That's, that's correct. And he talks about the pattern, following after the pattern. And then evidently there was a pattern that we follow after that he, he includes most of in the word. But then there's times where he says, um, at, uh, as it has been shown to you on the mountain. So evidently Moses had like a little workshop, like side thing over here where he would hear, he would write, but then he would go and God would somehow show him. We have no idea if he used transparencies or PowerPoint or what, but he would show him exactly um, how it was supposed to be done. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. What are some other details? Movable. Yeah, it's mobile. Everything has these rings and these acacia wood poles that are overlaid in gold and everything, and it says, leave the poles in the rings, leave the poles in the rings over and over and over again. So it's mobile. So that's where we get our mobile worship. This was the first form of mobile worship. Center of the camp, and why is that significant? Yeah, God came to Tabernacle in the midst of the people, so it wasn't something that was just far off that they would only think about now and again when it was time to go there and take a sacrifice, but it was something that it was in the very middle of the camp. Um, it was in the, uh, you, would, you would see the courts, which we'll talk about tonight, then we'd see the tabernacle, and then outside of that, at, a, at I would imagine a, a, a decent distance, but not too far, would be all of the, the tents that people lived in, um, as they were a traveling, um, desert dwelling people of a few million at this point. Uh, what does John 1.14 say that Jesus did? Feel free to turn there if you'd like. What does John 1.14 say that Jesus did? Yeah, the Word became flesh and He came to tabernacle among us. So what's the significance of knowing that there is a tabernacle that God called His people to build in a very meticulous way, following the pattern exactly as He says, and then we see later on, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. What are some insights that we glean just from those two realities? Yes, Jesus was not an afterthought in God's plan. The, the the spoiler alert is that this entire thing is about Jesus. All, everything has something to do with Jesus and informs us as to our salvation that exists only in Christ. So Christ was not an afterthought. It wasn't, oh, they messed up, they didn't keep the law. Uh, okay, well, i got to figure out something, and then, he, then God brought up Jesus. That, that's not at all how it works. Um, so it, Christ was not an afterthought. What else can we glean from the two truths that... There's a specific, meticulously built tabernacle in Christ's tabernacle among us. What does it say about your walk? Oh, yes, yes. God is very, very interested in the details. We don't just wing it. We don't, it's not just sort of a, it's just Jesus and me. Your story is the story of a people And um, for each of us, our story goes way back uh, to the beginning, and God has always been involved in every detail, and when we disregard him in in any detail, that's called sin. And so, um, he is not, um, he's not interested in just us trying to figure it out as we go in some willy-nilly, disconnected way where we very rarely open our Bibles, but rather he says, follow the pattern, be meticulous, be detailed, because I'm a God who cares about those details because all of your life is designed for my glory. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 uh, states that God's children are now considered a royal priesthood. Y- y'all have heard that language, royal priesthood. Um, how does Exodus 26 shed light on what this means? Why would we care about being a royal priesthood? The tabernacle actually makes sense of that. Otherwise, it just sounds neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does that tell us about our relationship with God? Ac- yeah, yeah, access to the sanctuary, and how was the sanctuary different from the outside? It was where he dwells. It was, it was beautiful. Everything was covered in gold. And so there's this picture that those who fully appreciated the beauty of the tabernacle were those who fellowshiped inside. And how did they get inside? By what means? A blood sacrifice, blood atonement. And so there's so much imagery. And that's, that's why in my prayer, before we started this, this time together tonight, I prayed that we would be able to really climb in because there's so many details, so many opportunities for teachable moments. And I don't want us to just be like, ooh, that's neat. Ooh, that's neat. Ooh, I've never seen that. Ooh, that's neat. I really want us to worship in this. I want us to see it's own, we're called a royal priesthood because of what Christ accomplished. The spilled blood of Christ, the sacrificial lamb who was perfect, is what grants us access into the holy of holies. That we can be like the royal priesthood um, in close fellowship with God. And we don't have to continue to bring these, um, these animal sacrifices because Christ accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And he did it once and for all, which is what we'll close with a verse from Hebrews tonight. But climb into this and see, there are so many details. But I don't just want this to be like just a, a neat thing. Like you walk, that's neat. That was a lot of really neat stuff. This, is, this, this informs our worship uh, in, in a significant manner. So those who fully appreciated the beauty of the tabernacle... Were those who fellowshipped inside by means of blood atonement. So there's two perspectives that I want us to take into account as we study tonight. One is by a guy named A.W. Pink. Uh, a very unfortunate name for a dude, but Pink refers to this section of scripture that we're entering into uh, in Exodus as the longest, most blessed, but least read and uh, understood section of this precious book. It is a fact worthy of our closest and fullest consideration that more space is devoted to an account of the tabernacle than to any other single object or subject treated in all of scripture. So we're able to see here that God very purposely gives a lot of time to this. And it's not just so that we're annoyed by details. Don't be annoyed by the details. All scripture is breathed out by God and he gives a lot of air time to the tabernacle because it, it informs us in an immensely significant manner as to the realities of Jesus Christ. Another guy, that's one perspective. The other perspective is from a guy named John Davis, who gives a very sound and sober warning that we talked about last week, that it's quite apparent that some parts of the tabernacle were there for only one reason, to give it structural support. So he's saying, don't over-spiritualize it, but don't under-spiritualize it. He says, uh, they were not intended to convey some mystical, typological meaning. It's very dangerous to impose symbolic meaning on the text, which the Scripture does not give it. And so, those two perspectives inform our approach. I don't want to under-spiritualize anything, and I don't want to over-spiritualize anything. I don't want to look at this and just see a bunch of details and say, it's insignificant, and I don't want to look at this and see the details and try to over-spiritualize them and make them all mystical and crazy and, and uh, heebie-jeebie, you know, whatever. Um, we want to be sober in our, in our approach. And so what we're going to do is continue what we did last week and say, what symbolism does Scripture give to Scripture? Where do we see Scripture informing this in other areas so that we can go back to the tabernacle and say, oh, I see what this is all about. So uh, I'm going to read through Exodus 27. Remember, the details are not designed to annoy you. The details are designed to encourage you in your worship of the one true God uh, that you can enjoy because of the blood sacrifice of Christ. So I'm going to read through Exodus 27, and y'all pay attention to the details. As I read through this, try to picture in your head what I'm talking about. Try to picture the temple courts. Try to picture the curtains hanging and the the bases and the stands and, and what all this looks like as I read through this. You shall make the altar of acacia wood. This is talking about the bronze altar five cubits long and five cubits broad. Now, what's a cubit? About 18 inches. They would measure from the tip of your finger to your elbow. So it's about a foot and a half, 18 inches. So you can say where there's 100 cubits, it's about 150 feet. So um, you shall make the altar of acacia wood about, uh, wood, not about. God does not use the word about in here. I don't want to add that. Um, (laughs) Five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square. It's height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, and as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so it shall be made. So what you're seeing here is essentially a big fire pit. If you've ever been to a huge barbecue place, It's probably not all that crazy different. It's not a smoker, but it's a fire pit. You have ashes that gather as the sacrifices are burned. You have these basins. You have shovels to take care of the ashes. There's blood everywhere all the time, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. But you're essentially just picturing a big fire pit with a big bronze grate made out of wood that's overlaid with metals. And um, that's where you burn the sacrifices. So as you walk into the temple courts, that's one of the first things you see is this big bronze altar. Look at verse 9. You shall make the courts of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. So how long is the tabernacle? A hundred cubits. So that's about, what, 150 feet? This building is 100 feet long and 60 feet wide. So what we're going to find is the tabernacle was add half to this building and add 15 feet to that side, and that's about the size of the temple courts, okay, like the the whole enclosure. That's what we're talking about. So it's a little bit bigger than this, but this gives you an idea on the, you can kind of sense if you walked up to it, you could see just about how big it is. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen and a 100 cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze with the hooks of the pillars and their... Uh, Fillets shall be of silver, and likewise for its length on the north side there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, which is seventy-five feet, roughly, uh, no exactly. Look at that. You see that? I just, I want to make it roughly. I want to make it approximate, and God's very, very detailed. That's called sin." Verse 13, the breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and the three bases. On the other side of the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted fellated whatever with silver, their hooks shall be of silver, their bases of bronze, the length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth 50, the height five, so it's about seven and a half feet tall, about about as tall as most fences in yards, like in your backyard, that's about how tall you're looking at here, to help you picture it. Um, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord." It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So what God's setting up here is a statute to be kept through generations. We have this temple court that's uh, 50% uh, wider than this, or longer than this, uh, 15 feet uh, wider. That's the temple court. And then you have the tabernacle in the middle of the temple court. And uh, we have a lot of details here uh, about it. So all of this is about Christ. Mark Devers says that unless it does not first speak of Christ, it cannot speak to the Christian. Last week, we saw Christ in the outward plainness of the tabernacle, the inward beauty of the Holy of Holies. We found that in Christ, we are a royal priesthood that has such access to such beauty. We saw Christ in the pattern of the tabernacle, in the sense that we today are to keep a close watch on our lives and follow the pattern of sound words that we have been taught from the scriptures. This is a picture of specific obedience, dying to self every day as the flesh rages and tempts. Daily death to self. We saw Christ as the bread of life, who bids us to come to him that we may never hunger again. He's the light of the light that shines out of darkness, or the light of the world. He's the great high priest that gives access to God, gives us access to God, and the sacrifice that receives the wrath of God that's the result of all of our sin. And Third through sixth graders, what I want y'all to know, as well, I want the adults to know this, but I want y'all to know it too, is that this is all gospel. Every bit of this is gospel. I didn't learn that until I was in my 20s and teaching it. I I thought gospel was mainly some New Testament truths about Jesus, and if I shared it in the right way, the gospel is what people would hear and and come to Jesus. And what I want y'all to know is that This is all gospel. This is all good news. Seeing Israel in the temple courts and coming to the the tabernacle and the work of the priests and the sacrifices and the altars and the incense and the oil and the fine twined linens and the, the, as it it gets holier and holier as as you get to the holy of holies and, and the metals even become more precious. All of this speaks about Jesus. All of this is the gospel. All of this is the good news. So I don't, don't miss that. I would love to have been brought up in a manner where I could turn to Genesis and, and know I was reading the gospel, where I could look at Exodus and know, "Ooh, this is important." Just as important as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So this is all gospel, and I want us to all see that. Turn over to John 14:6. Turn to John 14:6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What connection do you see between Christ in this verse and the tabernacle in Exodus? It's things that are repeated in Scripture, and so we will repeat them as well. Exactly. As soon as you walk in, the first thing you see is that bronze altar of sacrifice. Um, You can turn back to Exodus 27. Unless you are sinless... Like, why would you bring a sacrifice? Because of what? Sin, right? So, the only reason that you could ever walk up in there without a sacrifice would be if you were sinless. So, do you think that ever happened? No. We sin all the time. Sin isn't just something that creeps in now and again. It is a fight daily. And so, there would never be a time for anyone to come to the tabernacle without a sacrifice. So when when you walk in the temple courts and through the east entrance, which is, um, it's imagery that leads us back to the garden because the entrance was on the east side and we see God restoring things here. Um, You would walk in and you'd see that altar and you'd know that's for my sacrifice. And so you'd see this bronze altar and unless you're sinless, you don't come before the Lord without a sacrifice and that is presented at this altar. So I want y'all to consider the regular consistent unending flow of sacrifices think about what that would be like what that would sound like what that would smell like what that would look like all day you would hear the bleeding and crying of goats and bulls as a priest takes a knife and slaughters the innocent animal now if you're thinking yikes that's unpleasant Yes. That's the point. I thought about, well, should I talk about this with the 3rd through 6th graders in here? Absolutely. Um, All day you would hear the bleeding and crying of goats and bulls as the priest would take a knife and slaughter the innocent animal. So my question is, do you think that God hoped that this would ever become normal and pleasant for his people? No. No. He never wanted this to become normal and pleasant for his people. This... Um, this, God chose sacrifice of an innocent animal for the purpose of it not being something you would get used to, for the purpose of it not being something that you would grow indifferent to. I, I'm guessing that even for the priests, every time they took the animal and took the knife to kill the animal, there was probably something about that that was uncomfortable and Unpleasant. Um, It wasn't something that they, were. it wasn't fun. It wasn't, oh, look, let's slaughter a bunch of goats. It wasn't fun. This was designed by God to be unpleasant. There is unpleasantness of sacrifice. It's supposed to remind us of the corrosive and deadly and horrible nature of our sin. I don't know how many uh, of you have watched The Passion of the Christ. Uh, Do you remember when the movie came out, The Passion of the Christ? It was hard to watch. Most people didn't say, ooh, I can't wait to watch that again. Sometimes you see a good movie and you're like, man, I want to get that on DVD. I bet they didn't sell very many DVDs of that movie because it's unpleasant. It's hard to watch what happens as the innocent, pure, um, sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, is put to death in a tragic and horrible way on a cross. The movie did a really good job of showing how unpleasant and horrible it is but we have to connect that to our sin. We can't, just, we can't just say, oh, what happened was bad. You have to realize why that's happening. Why were the animals being killed over and over and over again? It's because we sin over and over and over again. I was trying to think uh, through a way to illustrate this that wasn't too graphic, and it's difficult. But um, third through sixth graders, I want you all to think about how sweet it is to pray. Adults, think about how sweet it is to pray. How sweet it is to know that you can cry out to God and He hears you, to come before God, to draw near to God, and to know that He's not shunning you or, or, or away on a, on a break, but He's listening, and, and, he's, and we have access to Him in Christ. We should cherish prayer, but what if every time you went to pray to God, you had to take a water balloon full of red paint and throw it against your clean bedroom wall? Just think about it in these terms. So think about every time you went to pray, you'd take a water balloon that was full of red paint, and before you could pray, you would take it and throw it against your clean bedroom wall. What if every time you came to worship, you went up to one of these nice, clean, white walls with a hole in the back that I just found earlier, and you would take and slam that, and watch that red paint just go everywhere? What if you had to do that every single time you came to worship or you wanted to pray to God? think about it. After about a week, what would that wall look like? Very red, right? What would it smell like? Paint. Could you ignore it? No. Now, here's my other question. Every time you saw the wall covered in red paint, what else would you think of? Blood. What would that smell like? disgusting. It's not a pleasant smell. What else would you think of? What, what, what's the reason that you'd be throwing that against the wall? Sin. You're exactly right. You're sin. So, what I want us to see is every time you saw the wall covered in red paint, you would think of sin and sacrifice and their everyday things. Would there ever be a time where you could go to pray to God and say, oh, no, I'm good right now. I, I need no sacrifice. No, it would have to be every single time. So that's just a water balloon full of paint. Consider the most treasured blood of the most treasured being to ever walk the earth. It it begins to put things in perspective. So every time you saw that bronze altar, you would think of sin and sacrifice and how they're everyday things, and lots of sin means lots of sacrifice. Lots of sin means lots of sacrifice. Again, God's intention was that the sacrifice of the innocent would always be unpleasant. And it would draw us into an understanding of the corrosive and horrible nature of our sin and how it separates us from God. Because if you don't have that sacrifice, what can you not do? Draw near to God. And if you don't draw near to God, you're always away from God. You're always distant. So this is very, very important. Now, we're going to turn our attention to the temple court Remember all the details about the court. Remember I said it's 150 feet by 75 feet, and it was about seven and a half feet tall all the way around. And it had these bases, and it had these hooks where the, the, the fine twine linens that were sewed would be on, and there was an the east-facing entrance. Turn to Psalm 65, 4. Psalm 65, verse 4. Says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. What does this verse reveal about our understanding of the temple courts? And Jesus. Specifics. We're being specific now, not vague. What's the first word? What does the word blessed reveal to us about the temple courts and Jesus Christ? Who are the blessed ones? The ones he brings. What's the other word used there? The ones he chooses. Okay. Okay. And, and where does he bring them? Near. Near what? Himself. His holiness. God chooses and brings some near, so they are blessed to be in his courts. Um, and what does it go on to say? What does that mean that we are? We shall be what? Satisfied is your life marked by satisfaction no matter what? We're blessed, we've been brought near by the sacrificial blood of another. And it says, blessed is the one who you choose to bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. You ever been somewhere where someone really takes care of you? Like you go somewhere and you stay at their house and you're all worried about being a a nuisance because you're having to stay at their house, but then they just bless you. Has that ever happened to anybody? Where you just, they take good care of you. You wake up in the morning, they like made breakfast, and you're like, wow, thanks, I appreciate that. There's such blessing there. This is saying, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. There are more abundant blessings in the house of God and in the holiness of his temple as he draws us near than we can understand. But this informs, this right here, informs our satisfaction. A people who continually dwell with God because of the work of Christ, are you a satisfied people? Um, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book, because what's the opposite of satisfaction? What does it mean if you're never satisfied? You are what? Discontent. That's right. You're discontent. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It seems weird that Christian contentment would be a rare jewel in the first place, wouldn't it? Shouldn't we be marked by such satisfaction and such contentment in our Lord? And he talks about how our souls have a voice. Because in Psalm 62, it says, oh, my soul, why are you, why are you at turmoil within me? And um, he talks about how our souls have a voice that the Lord hears. And, and I would ask you, do, do, does the Lord hear satisfaction or discontentment in your life? Because he's brought us near. We're blessed in Christ. And satisfaction is almost something that, I'll be honest, it's more of an anomaly than something that's normal these days. When you find someone who, who seems very satisfied with their lives and satisfied with their lot and satisfied uh, of, of what Christ has for them and how they've been blessed and how they're walking, when I meet someone who is satisfied and who doesn't sound discontent, it usually convicts me. I'm like, man, this person's different. But that's, that's what we should be marked by. Blessed, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. Turn to Psalm 84, verse 2. Here we get to the part about the soul. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Is that you? Does your soul long? What does it even mean for your soul to long and to, to thirst and to faint? What do y'all think that means? does that? I guess we'll make it a lesser question to try to gain insight, but what does that look like? A soul that faints and longs for the courts of the Lord. It's dependent. It's not seeking after the things of the world. It's n- yes, we long for it because it's not where we're at. We we have a I was told something really early on in my Christian walk that was really, really helpful and it was have a continual awareness of have a continual awareness of God's presence and always keep an eternal perspective. Where there's this perspective that I'm not so caught up in where I'm at now. This is not what I was meant for, ultimately. So there's a longing, um, there's an anticipation, there's an eagerness, there's a willingness to to let go of the things of the world. Um, I was reading uh, in Corinthians yesterday about. He says, "I I will discipline my body lest after I preach I I should be discounted," and, and it's a picture of denying things, not just for the sake of self-denial, but for the sake of, of growing Godward and, and not being consumed by the things of the world. And so, um, here we see, uh, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy for the living God. I think one thing here is, in the middle of a difficult day, do you, do you just long and faint to be out? Or do you long and faint to, to be with the Lord, to, to, to be in the presence of, of God? Um, I, I remember every class that I ever went to through all of elementary and junior high and high school and college until I quit going to those classes, um, I would want out. It wasn't that I wanted to particularly be in another place particularly. I just did not want to be there. And uh, the question is, I mean, is that, does your soul long and faint for something specifically, or you just want out? You just, you just want to be away from, from, from where you're at in life right now. Because this, this is talking about uh, the, the presence, um, the courts um, of the living God. Turn, look down at just verse 84:10. 10, 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. What does that mean? How do we gain perspective from that? What does a doorkeeper do? I'll give you a hint. The... Yeah. They keep what? The door. <laughs> the doorkeeper keeps the door. Yeah, it's it's this continual thing, but it's where they're at. So they're thankful for where they're at, and they're not so distracted by what they're doing that they can't be thankful for where they're at. And so here, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. What do the courts, the temple courts, house? Is there anything better than the temple courts? More holy than the temple courts? The tabernacle, yeah. Yeah. And even in the tabernacle, you have the holy place and the most holy place. So this worshiper is saying, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He's not saying, one day in the holy of holies. Okay, I'll settle for the holy place. He's saying, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So there's a humility, there's a sobriety in the psalmist here uh, that's informed by the temple courts. Look at Psalm 96, verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. How does this inform our walk with Christ and the whole temple court imagery? What do we bring? And? Yes. Why? Because we have to, because we have done what? We've sinned. Okay, and so we are worshipers. We ascribe the Lord the glory to his name. We bring an offering and come into his courts. Uh, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Uh, one reminder that I think is sort of jumping off of the pages at us is don't let your sin keep you from coming to God. Don't let your sin keep you from coming to God. Know that in your sin, you cannot approach God. That, that's why you need Jesus. But what we see here is the worshiper bringing the sacrifice so that they can come before God because it's better to be in his courts for a day than a thousand elsewhere. So your sin is not meant to keep you away from God and away from God's people and sort of in hiding and you think, I'm not deserving. No one who has ever stepped foot in the temple courts, including the high priest, was ever worthy. Christ is worthy. Christ is the reason that we would even step foot or consider or think about moving in the general direction of the temple courts because of the worth of our Savior, the worth of our sacrificial lamb, the worth of his atoning blood. Turn to Psalm 100.4. When I said 100.4. Jams. Yeah. <laughs> I just step back into time and in Dallas. There. Um <laughs> Psalm one hundred verse four. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. So how do we enter his courts and his gates? With what? Two things. Thanksgiving and praise. I would encourage y'all, when y'all go to worship the Lord, whether it's corporate worship, whether it's in your homes, with your families, thanksgiving and praise. Don't leave those parts out. A lot of times, we can leave out thanksgiving and praise and adoration and confession, and we just show up and we're ready to ask for stuff. And that's imbalanced. We come with thanksgiving, we come with praise because he's a holy God and he's worthy of that. A.W. Pink says, the court is called the tent of the congregation and the tent of meeting. Now it is in Christ and in him alone that God and his people meet together. The court then spoke of Christ as the meeting place between God and his people. That's what I want y'all to see. The court is Christ, the meeting place for God and his people. Without without Christ, we have no meeting place with our Lord. Christ was accessible to all who sought him, but his glory was beheld only by those who drew near in faith. Um, I want to read... Uh, yeah, I'm just going to close with a reading of, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the oil next week as we go into the next chapter in the work of the Holy Spirit, but turn over to Hebrews 10, and I'm just going to close with a reading of Hebrews 10. We've had two weeks of lots of tabernacle imagery. We've talked about the table. We've talked about the bread. We've talked about the lamp. We've talked about the altar. We've talked about the mercy seat. We've talked about the Holy of Holies. We've talked about the holy place. We've talked about the bronze altar. We've talked a little bit about the basin. There is all of this imagery, all the utensils, all the furniture, all the wood, all the overlaid with gold. And now that we've talked about all that, we've considered all that, we've looked at all that, I want you all to read Hebrews 10 with me. You can read along or you can listen. Either way, pay attention to the details. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, so everything we've been talking about is a shadow of the good things to come, okay? Instead of the true form of these realities, in Christ we see the true form of the realities. Now, I'll just read. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make, make perfect those who draw near. So what we just read about for the last two weeks, that could never make someone perfect to be able to draw near. It could never make them perfect. So we're gaining perspective here. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If they were cleansed once and for all, they wouldn't have their consciousness of sin at that point. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It's a reminder of sins. Just as you would see that altar covered in blood, ashes of burnt sacrifices all over the place. Probably a, a mist. You know how when you clean out your fireplace, you got that, you can sort of taste it a little bit? Um, that was probably a reality there where there was this, you know, however many cubits by however many cubits thing full of ashes. And they would put them in buckets with the right utensils and dispose of them accordingly. That was meant to be a reminder. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly over and over again the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, this is the gospel, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made Christ-like. That's us. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The only reason you showed up tonight without a goat that would be slaughtered by a priest is because of what Christ accomplished. Think of the cross as an altar and Christ as a sacrificial lamb. The only reason you didn't bring livestock is because of Jesus. Therefore, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, remember it was torn on the cross, that is through his flesh, torn on the cross, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. What happened in the tabernacle happened so that you would today stir one another up by love And good works. This informs our relationships with each other. Not neglecting to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together. It's important that we gather. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of 2 or 3 witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified, by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine, I will repay again and again; the Lord will judge his people." It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls Hebrews 10 is a sweet encouragement in the light of this tabernacle scripture let's pray Lord, I I confess that I I wish that I could personally do more than to to make these more than just words on a page. I wish I could personally do more to to make this more than just some neat details and facts. Um, uh, But being keenly aware of the fact that we're jars of clay on our best day, um, we humbly bow before you and ask that you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. By the work of the Holy Spirit, give us insight. By the work of the Holy Spirit, allow our souls to be satisfied. Give our hearts rejoicing continually. By the work of the Holy Spirit, preserve us. Give us the ability to endure and help us in all of this movement to never take our eyes off of Jesus. I I don't want to move through these scriptures in a way that neglects anything. And it's really hard. So Lord, we, we trust you and we humble ourselves before you. I ask that you would allow each of us to to have understanding uh, that clearly uh, does not come um, from within, but that comes from you, who is altogether different than us. There is none who gives you counsel, uh, but we desperately need your counsel. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.